0: This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. On May 7th in 1850, Robert Browning, the British poet, was standing at the window looking out and he was just standing there with his hands behind his back and suddenly he felt something in the hand. His wife, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, had slipped noiselessly into the room and placed in his hand a bundle of papers with her handwriting and a title page, Sonnets from the Portuguese. And no, these were not translations from a foreign tongue. Robert's pet name for Elizabeth was My Little Portuguese because of her dark complexion. This collection of sonnets was her birthday gift to him, an outpouring of her love. It certainly didn't look like anything, but it was a treasure and I pause right here to say that I am a native of Western Pennsylvania, and we have our own dialect, as you know, and I I grew up pronouncing that word treasure till I went to college and became the object of ridicule. So I may slip occasionally, but it was a treasure, that collection of sonnets. And I bet that many people here know the first line of one of those sonnets How do I love thee? Yeah. A gift of love, a treasure in pen and paper. Now imagine that you want to give a gift to someone you love, not because of what the person has done or could do or could deserve or has earned or has achieved something just because you love that person and delight in her or him. You want your gift to be something that is a part of your life, something that would, this world would not recognize as a treasure but will be treasured by your beloved because it came from you. Think of what you have. What might that be? a scruffy toy, a dog-eared book, a letter written during World War II. Have you thought of something? And now you must find a container to put it in. What shall that be? An empty popcorn bag? An elegant little velvet box? Two things, the treasure and its container. That's what today's New Testament lesson is all about. God is the lover, you are the beloved, and he delights in you. So, what treasure does he give, and what is the container? Here, our text The same God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give, here it comes, the treasure, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Not a material thing at all. Knowledge. Not guesswork, not wishful thinking. Knowledge. Not the same as information. We live in the age of information. We get so much information, it almost smothers us and we can't handle it all. And so much that it may keep us from actually knowing anything because we don't have to know anything. We can Google it. But are there not moments when we say with T.S. Eliot, where is the knowledge we have lost in information? To know is to see and understand. Knowledge is a part of you. The furnishing of your mind, the energy of your imagination, the fountainhead of your vision. God's treasure to us is a particular knowledge the knowledge of the glory of God. Seeing and understanding the glory of God. Glory is a huge component in Christian thought and life. We sing the Gloria. We ascribe glory to God. In our scriptures, glory is God's very nature, God's very being. And we sense that there's a kind of brightness, but not just any brightness. It's not like a policeman holding a glaring flashlight into your face. Not that at all. God's glory is dynamic, the brightness radiates, and it is beautiful. So I suggest that we speak of the glory of God as God's radiant beauty. Radiant emitting rays of light, splendid, dazzling. And capital B, beauty. That beauty from which all small b beauties flow. Our text says that's the treasure. The knowledge of the radiant beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, you heard the Ten Commandments read, and you know that Moses received those on one of his trips out Mount Sinai to talk to God. One day, he said to God, show me your glory. And God says, "Uh, no, you can't, see my, you can't bear to see my glory. If you saw my glory, you would die. Well, that makes perfect sense. Our sun is 93 million miles away from here, and if we get too close to it, we die. How much more? the creator of the sun. But, says God, I'll do this. I'll put you in the cleft of a rock, and I'll pass by, and when I am go- pass by, you sneak out and look, and you will see my back. So while in this life, we can't see entirely directly the glory of God, we see evidences of it in small bee beauties. Moments when it's as if a door cracks open and we get a glimpse of glory. Where? Accessible to all human beings and most immediate in nature, the creation. Jesus kept pointing to things, bird, mountain, sand, rock. Consider the wildflowers, he says, they don't work. They don't achieve; all they do is bloom. But I say to you that Solomon, in all of his expensive, ornate, majestic robes, robes was not like one of these. And science is a revealer of the of the glory of God. Scientific research uncovers more and more every day the revelation of God's glory. Just think. When I took chemistry, there were only four elements on the periodic table. And look now. Look through a microscope. The tiniest organism is wondrously designed, the glory of God. The psalmist exclaims, the heavens declare the glory of God. So we look through a telescope at galaxies and universes, and we see the collision of two black holes. That's the glory of God. And most wondrous of all, all of that can be expressed in mathematics. That should be enough to send us to the floor with our faces down. But I asked, when was the last time you actually paid attention to a flower or gazed at a constellation? In Western Pennsylvania, we actually have four seasons, and each one of them has its particular beauty. But our lifestyle militates against our actual seeing glimpses of the glory of God. We drive through nature as fast as we can. Our man-made screens divert us with rapidly changing images so that we cannot behold anything, much less the glory. nature reveals it whether we notice or not. So too the arts. The arts also bespeak the existence of the radiant beauty. Music, that simple folk song that stabs your heart, or that piece by Mozart which is so perfect that it seems almost inevitable. Sculpture, Michelangelo David, Dance, classical ballet, Irish dancing. Literature, that sonnet. Painting, you name it. Theater, film, photography, and so on and on. Made in the image of our maker, we continually make things. And the arts, like nature, fulfill our imageness, sustain us, and give us joy. But even at their best, they can give us but glimpses of the glory of the radiant beauty of God. So if not in nature or the arts, where shall we find the full and certain knowledge of the glory of God? Our text tells us where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Last Sunday, Bishop Grant reminded us that our Lord said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, God's self-revelation in Christ. And so we see the glory, the radiant beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And remember what else he said last week? We get to be like what we worship. So how can we gaze upon the face of Jesus, whom we worship, so that we will get to be more and more like him. Well, some people see his face in a dream or in a vision, but I think probably most of us see the face of Jesus chiefly in the scriptures. When we read with imagination, with imagination, we're gonna practice. Now, we don't have time to gaze because you all wanna go home and get dinner, but we're gonna tune up the imagination here. I'm going to mention some situations and I want you to imagine. Okay, blind Bartimaeus cries out to Jesus and Jesus restores his sight. And what's gonna be the first thing that Bartimaeus says? sees? Come on, what's it gonna be? The face of Jesus. What does that face look like? That's the glory of God. Children run to Jesus. He picks them up, holds them in his arm, and blesses them. What's the look on his face? That's the glory of God. Jesus turns water into wine. What's the look on his face? That's the glory of God. People criticize Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. He is angry about their hardness of heart. What does his face look like? That is God's glory. Jesus prays in Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood. What does his face look like now? Then he's on the cross, his face defaced by blows by the plucking out of his beard and by the blood flowing down from the crown of thorns. Look, gaze upon self-giving sacrificial love. That is the radiant beauty of God. And so, even before he created the earth, God selected the treasure to give to you and me not because we earned it or have deserved it, but as Catherine of Siena said, God is crazy in love with us. We are his beloved, and he delights in us. So, what container does he put the treasure in? You heard it in our text. We have the treasure in jars of clay. That's us. Why? Because in the ancient world, the other materials they had at hand, such as cloth or wood or leather, would disintegrate. If anyone wanted to preserve a treasure, they put it in pottery. Any archaeologist can tell you that. Now, the older translations, instead of having jars of clay, had earthen vessels. Which do you like better? They're, perfect, they're both perfectly good translations. So if you don't feel like a jar, maybe you'd rather be a vessel. Um, That could be a a vase or a candlestick or a bowl or a dish of some type. Um, The important point is that we're made of earth. Do you remember what is said on Ash Wednesday if you receive ashes on your forehead? Remember what? That you are dust and to dust you shall return. Our earthy clayness is important because a shapely and beautiful vessel is not just any old thing. It's a work of art. Clay is organic. You can shape clay in the varying sizes and shapes. It's not like plastic or styrofoam. You can't shape plastic. All you can do with that is throw it in a toxic trash heap. We've already done that in the northern uh, west Pacific Ocean, we've already created a small planet of plastic which has already killed the small sea creatures and is killing the whales. Well, how about styrofoam cups? Picture them, thousands of them, all alike, all intensely boring and hardly beautiful. Drinking a tea A fine tea from that blah organic receptacle is not the same experience as drinking that same tea from a bone china cup. It's different. You and I are earth made of clay, shaped by the potter's hand, not machine-made. The point is that the jar or vessel, whichever it is, and whatever you like to picture when I say that, is meant to contain something. That's what it was created for, something of value. So how is such a vessel made? Well, I have no personal experience as a potter. So in preparation for this, I consulted three potters and, an, and one archaeologist. I didn't Google them. I spoke to them. And I found out that there are, to begin with, the potter has an intention, something to be made, a vision of a vessel. Then there are three steps that the potter must take to produce the outcome. Step one, choose. The potter selects clay, which has the potential of becoming what the potter envisions. Step two, Shape. The hands of the potter begin to transform a hunk of clay into something shapely and beautiful. Now at this step, there can be some setbacks. Because clay is organic, it can develop air bubbles, puffery, that actually will prevent the uh, substance from achieving its shape and strength. When that happens, the potter slams the clay onto a hard surface time after time until those air bubbles disappear and the integrity of the clay is restored. Even more drastically, sometimes this clay will simply not do what the potter is envisioning. Oh, something goes wrong. For some reason or other, the clay is not taking the shape that the potter is trying for. In that case, do you know what the potter does? Raises the chunk of clay as high as she or she can and smashes it to bits. And then gathers up the bits and starts all over again. Hear this from the prophet Jeremiah. The context is that Jeremiah is suffering. He's been knocking himself out, doing what he was called to do, without success. So God sends him to the potter's shop to observe. Jeremiah tells us, there, then I went down to the potter's house and there he was making something. And the vessel that was made was marred in the potter's hand. So he made it again into another vessel. A couple interesting points here. Did you hear marred in the potter's hand? We're always in his hand. He never abandons us. And we're all broken or smashed. Everyone in this room is to some extent broken. And if you think you know somebody who isn't, I say you just don't know that person well enough to know their brokenness. Broken or smashed, we're all in the potter's hand, and he never gives up on us. With him, there's no such thing as a lost cause. He gathers up the pieces, puts them back together, and starts again. We see in Jesus that brokenness is not defeat. God restores us. God is not looking for a perfect vessel, but for a useful vessel, one which can contain his glory and show it in a dark, lost world and believers, we are, as our treasure assures us, containers of glory. Not finished, but being shaped by God's loving hand. And by the way, the pottery always bears some mark of the potter's fingers. The last and most important step in the work is firing. A clay vessel is of no use whatsoever until it has been fired. If it's not fired, it simply disintegrates. Fire is what transforms the clay into the vase or the coffee mug or the huge urn or the delicate bone china cup. The wise potter knows precisely the amount of fire that the vessel requires to be transformed into something strong and beautiful. We earthen vessels are made strong and beautiful through fire. And it hurts. Sometimes we feel like crying out, all right, God, enough already. And then with Job, perhaps with tears and maybe through clenched teeth. We say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. How can we do that? Again with Job. I know that my Redeemer lives and at the latter day he will stand upon the earth and in my body I will see God. God as a friend, and not as a stranger. Recently, I bought a porcelain bowl, richly colored and gracefully shaped. Right now, it's in my study, just sitting there being a work of art. But the potter is unhappy with me. She says, put something in that bowl. A bowl has to have something in it. That's what it's for. In Jesus' great high priestly prayer just before his crucifixion, he prayed to the Father, the glory you have given me, I have given them. Them is us. So we know that in Christ we have the radiant beauty within us. That's what we're for if you don't remember another thing, please remember this. You are beloved of God, and he delights in you. And your work, God's work of art. Not finished yet, but by his purpose and design, already containing the treasure and here to show the world the knowledge of the radiant beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Soon we will come, earthen vessels, to receive from other earthen vessels the bread of heaven, the cup of salvation. And thus we gain strength and wisdom to continually and intentionally gaze. Not glance, but gaze into the radiant beauty in the face of Jesus. And so, as we close, will you pray with me from the Psalms? One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the fair beauty of the Lord. Amen.